it be in the twelfth day of July in the year of 49. Great parties of our orange men together then combined in memory of King William on that bright and glorious day to march around Lord Roden's Park and over Dolly's Bray. To march around Lord Roden's Park and over Dolly's Bray. And when we got to Wibbridgeshire, it was a glorious sight to see so many orange men already fortified. To march around the old domain, our music sweet to play. And the tune we played was a Protestant boys right on to Dolly's Bray. And the tune we played was a Protestant boys right on. Dolly's Bray was only one of a large number of sectarian fights in the last century, such as the Battle of Garva in County Derry. Mackin fight in County Fermanagh, the Battle of Clonow in County Tyrone, or even the Battle of the Diamond in County Armagh. There was an act brought in 1832 called the Anti-Processions Act, and this lapsed in 1845. And it was after 1845 that the Orange men, who had kept the previous act fairly well, uh, began to parade. They paraded in 1848 uh, over the, the new road to, to Castle Wellen, and uh, the result was apparently some ballads were made by the the opposition side taunting them on Cardiff, so they were determined to walk over Dolly's Bray in 1849. I haven't been able to trace any of these ballads at all, but in the government inquiry into Dolly's Bray, references made to these were printed, so I assume they were broadsheets. Oh, you ribbon man of Ireland, long may you reign. May you roll in joy and splendour to you raise your flag again. We were going down by Saggy Moor, looking for some fun. Sure that was the very night we took the orange drop. Oh, you ribbon boys of Ireland, long may you reign. May you roll in joy and splendour to you raise your flag again. What I heard about the Battle of Dolly's Bay, there was a party from my town land went away on horseback with a shotgun and one shattered, and that was finished, they just had to come home again. Another party went on horseback, had no gun at all, had got a pitchfork, and went on with it, and didn't think last very long when he seen what the opposition, he arrived back home again. Thus, a couple of facts of what I heard about Dolly's Bray. Well, where did the orange men come from? Well, they came from Munnaslan and Ballyward, in from that direction, heading right up, and these other party came from the other surrounding areas, waiting with and whatever equipment they had from coming. But then the opposition was so great that they had to surrender in a short time for the army and horse police and all those sort of people were outnumbered them. Mm. And they, they weren't properly equipped? <laughs> well, uh, attack them anyhow. The other party wasn't so very well equipped, and they had not only a pitchfork and one cartridge and a gun. Just then, two priests came up to us, and to Mr. Spears did say, Come turn your men the other road and never cross Dolly Bray. Be gone, be gone, you spapish dogs, you've barely time to pray. Before we fling your carcasses right over Dolly's Bray. Before we fling your carcasses right over I had an old aunt, and she was she was a housekeeper to her brother. He was a priest in in, in Leitrim at the time, you see. And, and she she died in she she died in in 1943, and she was about 94 then. So I mean, she would 
she would know quite a lot about it. So the stories I heard from her and, and was, was that but the the guns made an awful report. There was an awful bang from these very old um, what do you call Lunderbushes. Lunderbushes or whatever yes. they called them. <laughs> yes. And uh, then a lot of people would tell you there was very few lives lost at Dolly's Brave. Somebody said there was a pig killed at Buck Wards. I mean, this is all tradition and all stories. But but the <laughs> the terrifying thing that I, I, I always remember, and I don't think I should have heard this because I think it it, it was so frightening that, that about somebody called Leslie Beers, apparently William Beers his name, but uh, it was Beers of Bally Ward, and, and apparently that his ghost went round and he barked like a dog. I don't know why, but when I was a toddler, I heard it about... When I heard a dog barking, I used to run like hell. That was a... <laughs> You thought it was beers. I thought it was beers. Man. I was told it was beers that he, beers could never rest in his grave for some awful deeds that uh, I didn't. wasn't interested in that, but I was always, I was always afraid of, afraid of him. <laughs> he was the bogeyman. He was the bright bogeyman when I was young. Yeah. school I go to it's at the bottom of Dolly Spray and the master we used to have uh, told us that the battle wasn't fought at Dolly Spray it was fought by ne- in nearby fields and there's a school some of the boys from the school found an old martini gun and uh, some of the boys found blanets uh, which me, we think might have been used in Dolly Spray and in the mountain beside above the school uh, there's supposed to be graves there which we asked a man and he said that there's supposed to be people buried there and they must be very old because they're only marked with signs of cross a cross and there's the masters the master we had uh, did a taping and uh, we read an awful lot about and did our best to find out an awful lot and went up and down the brain. We found out an awful lot about it. How many people were killed at it? Did you find that out? No, I never really found that out. And do they think that these graves are the graves of people who were killed in the battle? Yeah, well, that's what we think, but uh, we're not very sure. And 11-year-old Michael Bannon is not the only one who isn't sure about some aspects of the famous or infamous encounter which took place at Dolly's Bray near Castle Wellen in County Down 125 years ago. Even the origin of the name Dolly's Bray is uncertain, but the Edinburgh Review for January 1850 offers this explanation. This spot had already become notorious in the annals of party strife. 34 years ago, in a contest which took place there, a Roman Catholic was killed. His widowed mother soon followed him to the grave, but left her dying injunction, so the story goes, that no orange procession should ever be allowed to pass that way. After her death, her name was given to the hill, and it became a point of honour with the Orange Party to march in procession over Dolly's Bray 
and with the Roman Catholics to prevent them. Now my song at last I'll end, my pen I will throw down, and wish success to every man supports the British crown. And generations yet unborn will mind this day of yore, where we named the place King William's Bridge and Dolly's Bray no more. Where we named the place King William's Bridge and Dolly's Bray no more. The years around the middle of the last century were disturbed ones all over Ireland. 1847 was the year of the famine. 1848 saw the unsuccessful rising of William Smith O'Brien and the Young Irelanders. The Orange Institution, suppressed by an Act of Parliament in 1825, had a revival in 1845. The Processions Act was rescinded, and by 1849 demonstrations were being held all over the nine counties of Ulster. In the matter of processions, the Catholics were not to be outdone, and on St Patrick's Day 1849 there had been a serious riot in Cross Gar and County Down, when the clash of ribbon men with police resulted in four people being killed. But events of the previous 12th of July were more immediately responsible for the encounter of Dolly's Bray. On that date, the Rathfryland and Castle Wellen Orange men had assembled at Bally Ward, about three miles northwest of Dolly's Bray in the Banbridge direction. Everything had passed off quietly. The Castle Wellen men had avoided the trouble spot by taking the newer but somewhat longer road to the south. Of the older road from Bally Ward through Mahara Mayo and Dolly's Bray, the contemporary writer in the Edinburgh Review had this to say. This road is so bad and hilly that a new one was made a few years ago, which, diverging from the other at Bally Ward Schoolhouse, takes the level ground to Castle Wellen, where the roads unite again. The hill road, though the shorter of the two, is rarely used, the new one being more level and convenient so that a procession going from Bally Ward to Castle Wellen would avoid Dolly's Bray, unless, indeed, they went out of their way on purpose. And to go out of their way on purpose is exactly what many Orange men did the following year, particularly those from Rathfryland and the Newry area, who, proceeding to Lord Roden's estate near Newcastle, had no business as far north as Bally Ward, except as reinforcements for the local lodges. And it was the Bally Ward men who regarded themselves as challenged. Referring to their taking the new road on the 12th in 1848, R.M. Sibbett, the official historian of Orangism, writes of its after... The Roman Catholics naturally interpreted this manoeuvre as a victory for their side, and songs were written extolling their valour on the occasion, valour which had never been put to the test. These compositions of the most insulting character were sung by ballad mongers at fairs and markets, and more irritating still, by rebel rowdies along all the roads in the country. This was more than flesh and blood could stand, and the members of the various lodges in the neighbourhood, nettled and provoked to the extreme, determined to march over the famous hill on the next anniversary of the Battle of the Boyne, or die in the attempt. Arrangements were made accordingly. Arrangements included a somewhat reluctant invitation from the Orange Deputy Grand Master Lord Roden to spend the twelfth in his domain in Tullymore. An order from Mr William Beers, Grand Master of County Down and Magistrate, that the Dolly's Bray route was the one to follow, and, more sinister, a run on gunpowder over the whole area. A Protestant shopkeeper witness at the subsequent inquiry said, 
There wasn't an ounce of gunpowder to be bought in either Castle Wellen or Ralph Ryland, or even as far away as Neary. No, no, I couldn't say whether I sold more powder to Catholics than to Protestants before my stocks ran out. Appeals were sent to Dublin Castle by the RIC and local magistrates to send down a large force of constabulary to help us in preserving the peace. As a result, two troops of cavalry, two companies of infantry, a sub-inspector of the RIC and 40 policemen, together with two stipendiary magistrates, arrived in Castle Wellen and Rathryland to reinforce the 34 policemen already there. No one in authority seems to have thought of asking the orange men to take another route, except the Bishop of Down and Connor, and he was in a weak position, as Lord Masserine reminded him. The clergy appear to be the chief promoters of the orange demonstration. So the scene was set for confrontation, and for an account of events as seen by a present-day local historian, here's Mr James Hawthorne, managing editor of the Morn Observer, Newcastle. It appears that Dolly's brave fight, which occurred, of course, on the 12th of July, 1849, was really the outcome of a banter between Catholics and Protestants. Some years prior to this, there had been a fracas of some kind on the hill, and in the year prior to the battle, that's in 1848, the Orange men paraded from Bally Ward to Lord Roden's domains, at Bryansford, which is about three miles from Castle Wellen. Uh, and uh, this parade took place on a new road which had been constructed in the years intervening the previous fracas. Now, uh, it appears that the Orange men took this new route, which was somewhat circuitous, to avoid any disturbance, and uh, they were taunted that on it, that they were afraid to go the other way. This apparently riled them and they threw out the challenge that they would march on the Dollisbury Road the following year and made plans accordingly. When it was known that these were afoot, the other side made uh, counter plans and uh, then when it came to the 12th and the Orange Men started off from Ballyward Lodge, which was occupied by Mr. Beers, a leading magistrate in the district. The, uh, he was the, leader of the Orange Men too, wasn't he? he was, yes, well, yes he was a Grand Master, uh, one of the leading Orange Men in the district. The, the Ralph Ryland district, uh, comprising some 18 lodges or so, uh, all assembled there. The Orange Men were apparently well armed, and uh, the uh, parade, the news of it had created quite a lot of concern and both military and priests were there to accompany it to ensure that there would be no law breaking. Well, the parade set off from Ballyward and took the Dolly's Bray route. As they did pass along the over the Bray, there were uh, ribbon men and uh, local people gathered and uh, did uh, apparently shout abuse at them and so forth, but it passed off without any violence. On the return journey, however, in the evening, the ribbon men had uh, congregated behind the 
walls at Mokrimi O Mountain, a short distance beyond Dollysbury, between Dollysbury and Bally Ward. <clears throat> Most of the procession had passed, but the ribbon men are alleged that they it is alleged that they opened fire on the rear part of the parade and uh, then the fight started. The police who were bringing up the rear guard and the orange men themselves uh, hopped over the hedge when after when the first shots had been fired at them and uh, the ribbon men's fire apparently did not take effect. It is said that they had used too much powder uh, with their powder with their balls, and uh, that these the, the shots flew over the heads of the orange men. The um, orange well, men were they well armed, in fact, Mr. Hawthorne. Well, it would seem that the ribbon men were quite well armed because they had come prepared, uh, and according to some of the um, pictures that. Uh, we some to see of Dolly's Bray. There were, they were assembled in three rows behind three successive dikes or stone ditches, and uh, I don't think it. Perhaps it would seem that it wasn't for the want of arms, but maybe for the effective use of them. In any case, be that as it may, the orange men. It would appear that they were well armed, as well as, of course, the police and military. Joe McAleenan from the village of Leitrim was born near Dolly's Bray. We asked him what he had heard of the battle. The circumstances of it that I heard was this, that uh, the orange men uh, marched over Dolly's Bray, which was the only real good road to Castlewellen from Ballaward, Monaslean area. There was another alternative road which was very bad. The good road for carts or anything like that was the road they took. Now, it appears that uh, there was a few house, thatched houses burnt. There was uh, an old woman killed. There was a simpleton lad killed. And uh, I think there was three or four people killed. Well, then they attacked them coming home again. The Catholics did. They attacked the orange men coming home again. And that was the Battle of Dolly's Bray. Well, it wasn't a big battle by not, no. any standards, no, I suppose. No, not a battle, only a skirmish. A skirmish. It wasn't really a battle at all. And it shouldn't have happened at all, I suppose. It shouldn't have happened really at all. Was, uh, the, the drink would be in, you see, when they were coming back from it. They'd be fairly drunk. And then the Catholics were upraised with these uh, thatched houses burnt, and the, there's an old woman burnt to death in one of the houses, and there's a simpleton who was herding cattle. He was shot. But what was the background to it? There'd been some trouble before that. Yes, uh, uh, the previous St. Patrick's Day, it appears the Catholic crowd, the ribbon men or whatever you call them then, went to Annatlone and they were attacked somewhere on the way. I don't know exactly where. That was that uh, feud was still there, you see. I think it was happened nearly everywhere at that time. Those ribbon men and orange men were fighting all the time. We mentioned earlier that there were differences of opinion on many matters associated with Dolly's Bray. The question how well each side was armed, this is what Joe McAleenan heard. Some of the, the Protestants would have what you called Queen Anne rifles, and the Catholics had old shotguns, that's all they had. 
There hadn't very many any of them. But nearly every house had a shotgun at that. Quite legal, different from today. If you were having a parade, you could have carried arms with you. There's no law. There's some recent acts of parliament changed all that. They carry in a firearms on the public highway. And they had to be licensed and all that sort of thing. It was different in those days. It seems to be generally accepted that only one of the Orange Party was shot, a man mistaken for a local publican, and he survived for about a month after the fight. James Hawthorne. The Ribbon men eventually took flight over Mockery Mayo Mountain and scattered. They, um, during the day, there were some lives lost. Four local people including a woman and uh, two men and a boy, a, simple, a simpleton boy, um, lost their lives. One orange man's life was lost too, but it appears it was a mistake. As the procession were passing along, they came on, uh, what, on an inn known as the Buck Wards. Now, John Ward was quite well, was well known locally and respected by most people. It is said that he was warned in advance to hide by some orange men. And, in fact, whenever the orange men did uh, come up and were prepared to wreck the place and to shoot John Ward because some of them felt that this was the headquarters of the ribbon men, uh, one local orange man, uh, Mr. Bingham by name, who knew John Ward well and had some res- had respect for him, uh, knew he was hiding in the pigsty, and he looked into the pigsty himself, saw him there, and, but shouted to the other groups who were following, there's nothing there, boys, go ahead, uh, and thereby saved his life. Uh, others went into the inn, fired shots round them, and uh, some of the bullets were found afterwards in the furniture, and it appears that the bullets found their marks in some of the beer uh, kegs, and the whiskey was flowing on the buckwards floor, to quote an old poem. It was here that, it is said, uh, an orange man who went into who was one of the first to go into the inn was mistaken by some of those following later and was fatally wounded by mistake and died two days later. That was the only fatality on the loyalists' side. Although it is said that there were quite a number of ribbon men were taken, their bodies were carted away in the middle of the night. The, uh, there was also uh, something about a pig being killed in it. I think that there uh, was uh, possibly, that could very well be uh, round about uh, the buck wars that this occurred. But uh, there is certainly a case of a goat being killed. because Goat was it? Uh, yeah, well, there, yeah. there may have been a pig, but there definitely was a goat. Because uh, in a ballad, which was written by a Mr. McCrickard, uh, shortly after the time of the battle, uh, amongst other uh, things, he says, 
there was one loyal fellow, his name I shall, I, I shall not quote, when he could shoot no ribbon men, he shot a poor man's goat. The goat actually did belong to a Mr. O'Prey, who lived on the other side of Macrameo Mountain. From all the accounts, and particularly from the report of the Commission of Inquiry, the orange men burning and wrecking houses and careering through the fields did a great deal of indiscriminate damage to property and livestock in the area, and there's no doubt at all about the four local people killed. Father Joseph Pettit of Gargory can still show the details of their death and burial in the parish records. We have the names of four in the records. Uh, John Sweeney, uh, Anne Trainer, Hugh King and Patty McElree. And the note after their names in the funeral register is that these were murdered by the orange men on the 12th of the month, that is the month of July, uh, 1849. They were buried on the 14th of that month. And what ages were these people? I think it gives uh, the ages too. Uh, Anne Trainer was 85 years of age, uh, John Sweeney 40, Patrick McAree was 50 and Hugh King was 11. And one of these was the, the simpleton, the, the idiot it was, boy. Yes, it was well, thought... Well, he wasn't young, of course. No, it was thought that uh, Sweeney was uh, a half-wit. He was called, I understand, the Egypt Sweeney. It's interesting that the name which appears in other records of the period as Patrick King is entered in the Gargery Parish Register under the Irish form Machinree. This would seem to indicate that there was some Irish spoken in the area 125 years ago and that Irish and English versions were interchangeable. The Irish language is now gone, but political allegiances are unchanged and they're proclaimed by a huge Union Jack painted on a rock face near Bally Ward and an Irish tricolour similarly painted in the foothills of Tullinasu Mountain. Religious allegiances have not changed either. Dolly's Bray is still predominantly Catholic. It's very, very much so. There are three townlands uh, uh, really around the, the district, Ballymaginthe, Ballymagrehen and uh, Mahermeo. And uh, the total population of that whole district would be possibly something over 400. And there might be about 10 uh, Protestants uh, in that population presently. And possibly there wasn't much difference uh, between the time of the march of the Orange Men. The population probably was much bigger, but the proportion mightn't have been much different. Why do you think did Dolly's Bray, which was really only a sort of a skirmish, really, why did it hold such importance for the Orange Men? Well, I don't really know <laughs> that, but uh, it was regarded as a great victory, I suppose, uh, to march through this Catholic district. And uh, then there was a song about it, and I suppose that made it so famous. You think it would be the song I that think it was the, kept the on song, the memory? I think it was the song, definitely. Now Lord Roden was the Grand Master, the orange men just then. No better chieftain could be found amongst the sons of men. To Romans and to ribbon men he was their mortal foe. He firmly stood like Joshua on the plains of Jericho. He firmly stood like Joshua on the plains of Jericho. Lord Roden is mentioned in nearly all the orange ballads on Dolly's Bray, and so also are some lesser lights like Brave Jordan, who is most likely Jardine from Rathfryland. But still the orange men marched on through Castlewell and town, 
Brave Jordan be in in command, he feared no popish frown. He nobly led his brethren on like William Prince Eor, until they reached the entrance gate to Sylvan Tully Moor. Until they reached the entrance gate to Sylvan Tully Moor. But the real leaders of the Orange Men on the March were two local landowners and justices of the peace. Aiken McClellan tells us about them and some of the others. The leaders of Ndolly's Bray were two brothers called Beers, Francis Charles Beers, who lived at Ballyward House, and his brother William Beers, who lived at Brook Cottage, Newcastle. William Beers was a very important orange man. He was the county grandmaster of County Down. His brother Charles appears to have been a nominal orange man. By that I mean he belonged to a lodge in Dublin, which he hadn't attended for 20 years. But nevertheless, <coughs> he gave permission to the brethren to assemble in his domain at Valley Ward. And he accompanied the brethren on their way to Lord, Ans to Lord Roden's domain at Tully Moor. Lord Roden, apparently, who was a very elderly gentleman at this time, uh, didn't really want the orange men in his park on the 12th of July. His wife uh, was elderly and not very well, but he finally gave in to having them. And the result was that at an inquiry which was held a few weeks after the battle, the government commissioner, a man called Walter Berwick, criticised the action of the two brothers, Beer and Lord Roden, and they were removed by the Lord Chancellor from the Commission of the Peace. There are some uh, stories too about Buck Ward, uh, which is, there's still a pub there, yes. near the site of the battle. Uh, there is indeed. Uh, Buck Ward appeared to be the, the leading Catholic citizen in the district. As you said, he was a local landlord. I think at this time he was a fairly young man because he lived until well into the beginning of this century. In fact, I've seen a photograph of him taken as a very old man. And uh, the pub is now owned by his uh, descendants. Uh, on, over the years, they had many relics of uh, the battle in their possession, but over the years, many of these were given away. And about the only thing left is an old cupboard uh, full of bullet holes. There were also a lot of the old lead shot there, and uh, I think now there's only one piece of shot left. Mm. Well, we heard today earlier about some banners or flags that were used on the orange side. Uh, ben Row Lodge have an old flag which was carried over Dolly's Bray. Unlike the mo modern orange banner, it's not made of silk, but it's made of damask. And we saw it today, and uh, it's very faded, very tattered, and badly damaged over the years. The local orange men have a tradition that when the flag returned to the lodge room after the battle, there were three bullet holes in it. But unfortunately, there's so many holes in it now that these can't be spotted today. On the Catholic side, very little of a complimentary nature has been said of that vague figure, the leader of the ribbon men, Captain Lennon, except that in the matter of drill and manoeuvres, he seemed to be an expert. He was, in fact, an ex-RIC man, but as a commander in battle, he was a total failure. It was uh, Captain Lennon from Aachen's of Finn, Castle One. Well, what did you hear about him? Well, as supposed to be when they were defeated, he cleared off that night and didn't come back to his own native land until a good, until he was an old man. 
went to America, did well, he? Well, said so. Went to America. I'm a great Danny, hey. Priest Mooney and Priest Murphy went among the rebel lines, distributing the wafer god amongst the Philistines. Priest Mooney cursed the orange men with candle, book and bell, while the rebel crowd, they cried aloud, we'll drive them all to hell. The rebel crowd, they cried aloud, we'll drive them all to hell. Well, that's how the orange ballad makers saw the two local priests and their involvement in the Dolly's Bray affair. Who, in fact, were they? Father Pettit of Gargory. I understand the two priests involved were Father Mooney of Leitrim and Father Morgan of Gargory, and that their object in going to the ribbon men was to get them to desist from any uh, attack on the orange men and to try to get them to disperse. But apparently they didn't, didn't completely succeed. There was not any attack in the morning, and what exactly happened in the evening is somewhat obscure. Uh, it's not known who fired the first shot or started hostilities. But the the priests in the case were definitely peacemakers and they tried to uh, prevent any possible trouble. The suggestion has been made that in many of these sectarian fights of the last century, the ribbon men, or indeed the entire Catholic population of an area, were deliberately provoked into the position where they felt in honour bound to offer some resistance to Orange triumphalism and better equipped force of orange men, supported by army, police, magistrates and the full panoply of the law. They were thus doubly vulnerable. They could take a hammering in the battle which the orange men expected and came prepared for, or if they survived, they could be sentenced as disturbers of the peace by the very same magistrates who organised the provocation in the first instance. We asked Joe Mac it wasn't foolhardy of the ribbon men to oppose the orange procession at Dolly's Bray. It was really, but there was a lot of provocation, you see. Uh, the uh, I remember reading where uh, these men were in the bog, beside where the men were working, you see, they were cutting turf, and they started shouting at some particular individuals among them. Well, one of these men was a very fiery, fighting man, uh, nicknamed the Flake, and appears one of the orange men uh, in provocation shouted, to hell with the Pope and the flake. So that was the signal the rest of the turf men all downed tools and attacked. And then the thing went from bad to worse. As fearlessly we charged in them, their turret was great. Through rocks and winds to save their skins, they beat a fast retreat. The Kulach tykes threw down their pikes and boldly ran away. And they cursed the fearful day they came to fight at Dolly's Bray. They cursed the fearful day they came to fight at Dolly's Bray. For those people who believe that a British Royal Commission or Government Inquiry will produce the facts about any given event in Ireland, there is, as we have heard, a full report available on Dolly's Bray. But, as with many such reports, before and since, its findings recommended themselves on one side or the other, only insofar as they butchered the already fixed attitudes of the protagonists. The Orange Men were not pleased with it. R.M. Sibbett says, That document was indeed described by competent authorities as not only inaccurate, but characterised by ignorance of notorious historical events, as well as by unfairness in presenting the evidence on which it professed to be founded. Commissioner Berwick's alleged ignorance and unfairness manifested themselves, no doubt, in a statement such as this. The Orangemen, assembled in numbers, 
with display of arms and an avowed determination to proceed through a Roman Catholic district by a particular road where resistance was anticipated and a collision expected, constituted an unlawful assembly, which ought to have been discountenanced at the outset, warned of the consequences of such conduct, and, if necessary, prevented altogether. Certainly, at the very least, hindered from passing along the road where danger was apprehended. We asked Aiken McClelland what were the principal points to emerge from the Commission of Inquiry. The main point that emerged was that the Orange men should not have provoked hostility by walking over Dolly's Bray. In the morning, uh, everything went well because the two local Catholic clergy managed to keep the peace. And although they tried in the afternoon, I think tempers had been roused and uh, it failed. But Berwick came down very severely on Lord Roden and the two Beers brothers. As I said, they lost their commission of the peace. And this riot caused a terrific impact on English public opinion. It is mentioned in all their lengthy articles about the Orange Order and about Dolly's Bray in all the, the monthly journals, English journals of the period. The result was that the government in the following year, 1850, introduced the Party Processions Act, which banned all party processions in Ireland. The inquiry also had some interesting sidelights. The appearance, for example, in the nationalist interest of the Belfast lawyer John Ray, an eccentric and colourful character. He certainly was. John Ray, who loved to describe himself as Her Britannic Majesty's Orange Fenian Attorney General for Ireland, was at this time uh, quite a young man of about 26. He had first come into the public eye the the previous year when he had been arrested and imprisoned in Kilmainham Jail on the charge of being a young Irelander, although tradition has it that he was really arrested because his father didn't want to have him involved in any fighting, so he arranged his arrest. And this was... Dolly's Bray really was the beginning of... a a very checkered career in Belfast and Ulster politics for the next 30 years. Among the magistrates who were involved in Dolly's Bray was George Shaw, who was the agent for the local Ansley estate in Castle Wellen. He died 20-odd years later, and the grateful tenantry of Lord Ansley's estate erected a monument to him in the square in Castle Wellen. This monument, unfortunately, was blown up 18 months or two years ago. I think uh, one of the interesting things about Shaw is that he's a very close relative of George Bernard Shaw, the famous playwright. And today, 125 years after, the spirit of Dolly's Bray lives on, on both sides. In a more normal society, that spirit of confrontation and conflict would hardly be a matter for celebration or perpetuation. But perhaps the day may yet come when the events of the 12th of July, 1849, will be remembered only through the popularity of an orange ballad. Dolly's Bray now is a very, very peaceful part of County Down. And I think that these... these Ballads can be provocative too. I mean, uh, they, they, do, they, they do contain words that are offensive, and I have often heard that, but 
I think people should probably laugh at them and not pay, pay much much attention to them, you know. Well, I suppose if we were more normal, people could afford well, to laugh at them. we should be them. able to laugh at them, you know. Yeah. We do. We should be able to have a good giggle at them. But, uh, I mean, if, th- if this thing w- was all over and these things, I think I, I would enjoy singing Dolly's Bray. Uh, I, don't, I don't care which side it favoured because, I mean, it depends on who's singing <laughs> these ballads, which... Say whoever lost the battle, according to which side you're on. I mean, when you sing the ballad that favours the, the, the victorious uh, crowd that you that you support. All this not I'll sing the other sides of it if, if all this was over. So now my song is ended, and me pen I will lay down. I'll grant success to every man who supports the British crown. For generations yet unborn will sing this tale of your. For we call the place King William's Bridge and Dolly's Bray no more. We call the place King William's Bridge and Dolly's Bray no more. Oh, Dolly's Bray, oh, Dolly's Bray, oh, Dolly's Bray no more. For the tune we played was kick the Pope right over Dolly's Bray. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.